This morning we are continuing our sermon series, Meeting Jesus. But I want to begin with a question of where do you place your faith? Where do you place your faith? It's not uncommon for us to talk about how we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. That we are not saved by our works or our good deeds. That our salvation, our hope for eternal life does not come from the good works that we do. Rather, sin has distorted our thinking. Sin is not just committing a wrong against someone else, but that sin is something deeper. Something that goes into our very hearts. That simply correcting bad behavior or defining moral code does not save us. In fact, one of the ways that we most often get the message of the gospel wrong is through something called Christian moralism. Christian moralism, though, reduces the gospel from something transformational to simply something conditional. If you want eternal life, don't lie, don't sleep around, don't get drunk. Moralism is not the message of the gospel. It's simply a human creation and a human set of standards. Now, there's no doubt that these are good behaviors to, uh, to live by, to have a healthy life. And there's no doubt that the Bible instructs us and gives us direction in many of those things. But moralism cannot replace the gospel. And it cannot save you. It may feel like if you live a morally good life, a morally outstanding life, surely you'll be saved. Because naturally that's how we operate and that's how our world operates. You put in the hard work and you get the reward. You put in the hard work and you get the promotion. Moralists may receive recognition and accolades from those who appreciate good behavior, who have high standards, who, uh, who want to hold everyone else to a certain set of standards. But that will not save you. That will not give you saving grace or eternal life just based on how you behave. Why? Because moralists aren't doing right things for the right reasons. They may be doing the right things, but it's for the very wrong reasons. And in this series, we have seen different encounters of people in the Bible meeting Jesus. And in each of these sermons, we have learned something new about Jesus, who he is, as well as how we encounter Jesus and what happens to us when we encounter Jesus, how we are transformed. That every time you meet Jesus, something happens and something changes, whether it's the first time or the thousandth time, when you encounter Jesus... You are changed. Well, this morning we're going to look at an encounter of Jesus while he's on his way to Jerusalem. And he's come to the border of the regions of Galilee and Samaria. And there's a lot of enmity between the Jews and Samaritans. And so Jesus is making his way along the border of these two regions when he comes to this village. 
And so he's about to enter this village that's full of people from both of these different provinces who don't like each other. And as he's going into the town, he meets ten men with leprosy. Our scripture reader for today is Gloria Gott. So Gloria, you may go ahead and make your way to the podium. If you're able, we ask that you please stand and face the center of the room. We face the center of the room to remind us that scripture is a central part of our lives. And we stand because we believe that this is indeed the authoritative word of God. So Gloria, whenever you're ready, please go ahead and read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except for this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Thank you, Gloria. You may all be seated. Now, lepers often congregated together somewhere outside of the towns or cities because they were deemed unclean. They had visible skin conditions, and according to the Jewish law, they were unclean, and so they had to be outside of the village. And so this group of ten lepers sees Jesus coming towards them, and they jump to their feet, and they know who this man is, because by this time, word of mouth has traveled of this man who is a healer, of who is a a miracle worker. And it says they keep their distance, but they they shout out to Jesus. They cry out saying, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. See, they recognize that Jesus has authority. That he has some sense of authority over disease, the ability to cure this ailment. So they call him Master. And they say, Master, have pity on us. But what's interesting about this story is how Jesus replies. Because he doesn't reply directly to their request. He doesn't just immediately heal them. Rather, what he says is, go show yourselves to the priests. Which, in some sense, had to be a bizarre response. Because the last place that these men would have wanted to go or thought they should go is to the priests. Because the priests are the very people who cast them out. Who told them that they were unclean. And now Jesus is telling them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And in the story, they're given no other explanation other than to just go to the priests. But without asking any questions, that's what they do. That's what they do. 
And another important thing to notice is that it doesn't say that they were cleansed and then they decided to go show themselves to the priest, but it says that they left to go show themselves to the priest and on their way, they were cleansed. So before they were cleansed, before they were healed, before Jesus answered their request, they obeyed his command to go. And his command to go was essentially go to the people who don't desire you. But on the way, they are healed. This is an act of faith and an act of obedience. In our life of faith, we are called to a life of obedience. We are called to turn to Jesus for healing, for guidance, for instruction. And these men demonstrate that when they recognize the authority of Jesus and they call upon him for help. These people, these lepers, they were kept at a distance. They weren't allowed to be within city limits. According to Jewish law, if we look at the book of Numbers, chapter 5, anyone who has a a skin-defiling disease, such as leprosy, was to be sent out of the camp so as not to defile the camp. But Jesus meets these men where they are. And what this story demonstrates is that Jesus is not just for those on the inside, but for the outside too. And these ten men, because they recognize Jesus' authority, they listen. We must recognize Jesus' authority in our lives. If we are striving to follow him, we must recognize his authority in our lives and recognize that we do not just get to choose when we listen or not to Jesus. For many of us, the idea of, having, of not having a free choice, of not being able to choose where you're going to go for breakfast or lunch after, after church. Are you, do you want breakfast or do you want lunch? Do you want a burger or do you want pancakes? Right? We like choices. We live in a country where we have all kinds of choices. And we like to make informed decisions. We want to know the outcome. We want to know all the different scenarios that are possible, all the different options. And if we know all, if we have all the information, then we can make an informed decision. However, that's not how Jesus operates in this story, and that's not how Jesus operates in Scripture. We don't get all the information. And rather, when we meet Jesus and he calls, we must go. According to the story, they get no other explanation. They don't get any other information. Jesus simply tells them to go. We may not know the plans that God has for us. We may not know what he's up to in this season of our lives. But when Jesus calls, we are to respond in faith and obedience. And these ten lepers do that. And because they do that, they are healed. But again, I want to make an important point going back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Because the order of operations matters. 
The order of operations is important. Kind of like in math class, right? If I, when I was in math, this is how it was done anyways, but we had this acronym that was PEMDAS, or how you were told to remember it was, please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. Anybody remember this from math class? Yeah, so you had to use, you had to follow a specific order of operations in order to solve the equation. P was parentheses, E, exponents, M, multiplication, division, addition, subtraction. You had to follow a specific order of operations. Well, in a similar manner, we need to understand that faith precedes obedience. The lepers demonstrate faith in Jesus when they recognize his authority. And because of that, they choose to obey his command to go. Now, when I think about the word obedience or the idea of obedience, I think of growing up as a kid, right? You think about your parents set rules for you that you're supposed to be obedient to, you're supposed to follow. Think about that, that relationship, right? And so it's important for you to be obedient to your parents. Of course, I was always obedient. I never went against my parents' commands or desires. Never thought as a teenager that, I, that they knew nothing and I had it all figured out. So for me, obviously, faith and obedience are a cakewalk. Sorry, I have a note. I was supposed to say that with sarcasm. <laughs> but in all seriousness, when I hear the word obedience, I think of this relationship, that, par- that parental-child relationship. That's what we think of. And Scripture uses that same model, actually. That same model is given to us for obedience in Scripture. If we look at Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3, Paul instructs us, saying, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first command with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. So it's noted, and it's significant, that We are to be obedient, and in being obedient, in honoring your father and mother, it will go well with you. Now, in actuality, was I always obedient as a kid? Of course not. But I like to think I was obedient more often than not. I like to think I had a pretty good upbringing. But the point that Paul is trying to make and ultimately is getting at is that we are to honor our heavenly father, just as we are called to honor our earthly father and mother. But if you have no faith, no respect for your parents or for God, are you really going to be obedient to what they command? No. Because remember, we have a choice. And there would be no reason to choose the will of someone or something that you didn't respect or have faith in over your own will. So faith must come first and obedience follows. And the letter of James also demonstrates how these two things go hand in hand. How you can't have one without the other. James writes, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? 
In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, if it sounds like I just made a case for works righteousness, because it does say a person is considered righteous by what they do, I want to make it clear again that we have to go back to that order of operations. I began at the top by talking about Christian moralism, about the dangers of it, because Christian moralism has the order of operations backwards. Moralism says if you do the things you're supposed to do, then you will receive your reward. But that's not what Paul and James are telling us. The message of the gospel is that they are sharing is that when you have faith, a real authentic faith in Jesus, you will have no choice but to do good deeds, but to do good works. Because you will not do them out of a sense of having to earn your reward. But you'll be doing them from a place of sincere gratitude for what you have already received. You see, obedience demonstrates true faith. Obedience is the visible expression of of an invisible faith. Do your actions truly speak of your faith? But that's not the end of our story either. The story continues after these ten lepers run to go to the priest. The story continues and it says that after they were cleansed, one leper returned to Jesus. Praising God's name, he fell at the feet of Jesus and said, thank you. He had gratitude for what Jesus had done for him. And the story then points out another interesting fact, saying uh, that he was a Samaritan. This was, again, it was a border town, and the lepers congregate outside. And so it's safe to assume that in this group there were both those Jews and Samaritans who had leprosy. And this is something that we see frequently in the Gospel of Luke, that Luke emphasizes that Jesus' ministry is not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. And the gospel message is radical because it is no longer just for the Jews, but everyone. It's another instance in this story of Luke pointing out that Jesus is for the outsider. Because it is the outsider that receives something from him. And if we look at Jesus' response... We get another peculiar response from Jesus, right? The first response is, go show yourselves to the priests. The last people the lepers probably would have wanted to go to. But now we get another peculiar response from Jesus. This man falls at the feet of Jesus and says, thank you. And yet Jesus doesn't reply with, you're welcome. Instead, he replies with three rhetorical questions. Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this 
foreigner? Three rhetorical questions that Jesus clearly knows the answer to. He knows that he healed all ten lepers, right? And he knows that the other nine are surely on their way to go see the priest because they know that if they show the priest and the priest can see that they're clean, they're going to be allowed back on the inside. They can come back into the city. And according to Levitical law, it was the priest who determined whether or not someone was clean. So he knows that that's where they're going because they see that they've been healed. They see that they've been cleansed. And now they've got an opportunity to be on the inside. And it's good to be on the inside, right? We all want to be on the inside. No one wants to be left out. No one wants to be excluded. And yet that's what these ten men were. They were excluded. They're the ones deemed unworthy, unclean. And it just goes back again to the radical nature of Jesus' teaching. And in Matthew 23, Jesus actually calls out the Pharisees and teachers of the law as hypocrites. And he uses this outside and this inside perspective. He says, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Essentially, he's saying you are on the inside of the walls of the village only because of what you appear to be on the outside. And it's the same for the lepers. They're on the outside of the walls only because of what you can see. Their leprosy, their defiling skin disease. But inside, they are the ones who recognize Jesus' authority. And it's you, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, who are internally corrupt. What's on the outside doesn't matter to Jesus. He's not concerned with the outside, but with the heart on the inside. And Jesus' final question once again points out the fact that this man is not only a leper, who's cast out, but that he's also a foreigner. He's a foreigner. So he's doubly unqualified to be on the inside, but he's the one who has returned to give thanks. And I can imagine that he falls at the feet of Jesus and he's saying, thank you, thank you. And Jesus asks these three rhetorical questions and he probably looked up a little confused at Jesus and he's looking around like, How should I know where the other guys are? When I saw that I was healed, I came here to you. He may or may not have known that the others were healed. So he's thinking, I just came back to say thanks to you. And so Jesus tells him, rise and go. Jesus then heals his heart through faith. Rise and go, for your faith has made you well. And this is a call to this man that you have been saved. It's similar to when Jesus heals another man who's on the outside. He heals a demoniac, a demon-possessed man who's outside of the city. 
And he casts this demon out. He heals this man. And the man then pleads to come with Jesus and says, I want to follow you because of what you've done for me. But Jesus turns him back and says, no, I need you to return home. I need you to tell others of what God has done for you. So now Jesus gives that same call to this leper, saying, rise and go. Go witness to the radical healing you have received, not just of your leprosy, but of your faith. This one leper who returns takes on a posture of, of gratitude. He demonstrates his faith in Jesus once again in knowing who Jesus truly is and now he receives a second healing because he receives the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus performs miracles. He performs signs. He performs wonders. He heals all ten lepers of their physical ailment. Yet his question is demonstrates the posture of authentic faith. His questions demonstrate how we get it wrong. Because while all ten lepers may have been healed physically, the other nine only sought the healing of their skin affliction. They knew what Jesus could do for them. But they didn't know who Jesus truly was. Unfortunately, today there are still so many who want what Jesus can do for them, but don't actually desire Jesus. Even inside the church, those who think they're on the inside, yet their purpose for being here is wholly selfish. It's the same as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They think they're doing their due diligence. And because of that, God will reward them. But pride is a deep-seated and deceptive sin. And it will tear apart everything that is good. In 2022, there was actually a study released, and it claimed to be the first study of its kind that compared pride and gratitude. It even took the stance that both pride and gratitude could be good emotions. But what it found was that pride is solely focused on self and self-esteem while gratitude is always focused on something outside of oneself. And there's been research done over the past two decades that has actually demonstrated just how integral gratitude is, not just to our social, emotional, and spiritual well-being, but actually even to our physical well-being. Because by consciously practicing gratitude every day, we are actually able to strengthen the neural pathways in our brains towards the positive things in our lives. And that through practicing a posture of gratitude, 
Ultimately, we create a permanent, grateful, and, pos- and positive nature within ourselves. That we actually strengthen our brains by being grateful. And I believe that when we take on that posture of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us already, what we have already received, it drastically reframes the way we relate to others and to the world around us. That gratitude will drastically reframe how you see your neighbor or your spouse or your children. So when I feel like I'm in Groundhog's Day, doing the dishes, sweeping under my kid's high chair, picking up toys for the thousandth time, instead of thinking, here we go again, didn't I just do this an hour ago? I start thinking, thank you, God, for another day with my kids. Thank you for providing sustenance for my kids. Thank you for a roof over my head. For the opportunity to do dishes because I've got a table to sit at. Gratitude drastically reframes how we view our lives. Christian motivational speaker Zig Ziglar says, Gratitude is the healthiest of all emotions. That gratitude helps us not to focus on ourselves, but to focus on others. I want to go back again to that false teaching that's so dangerous, Christian moralism. Set of human moral codes we've created. And Dr. Albert Moeller wrote an important article on the dangers of Christian moralism. And in it, he says, Our communities are filled with people who have been raised right, but are headed for hell. The seduction of moralism is the essence of its power. We are so easily seduced into believing that we actually can gain all the approval we need by our behavior. Of course, in order to participate in this seduction, we must negotiate a moral code that defines acceptable behavior with innumerable loopholes. Most moralists would not claim to be without sin, but merely beyond scandal. That is considered sufficient. But we're all sinners. And we've created our own moral code. But Jesus says something interesting as well at the end of his Sermon on the Mount when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? 
And Jesus responds and says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What an eye-opening statement that is. That there are those who recognize Jesus but fail to understand the order of operations. That only see Jesus for what he can do for them. Rather than desiring a relationship with him. Listen to what these people say. Did we not do these things in your name? It's a plea for the reward. It's a plea for what they think they deserved. We did these things, so now give us our reward. And yet Jesus' statement is, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Even though they were doing miraculous things, Jesus says, away from me, you evil doers. True saving faith is not obedient in order to receive something. But a true saving faith is born out of gratitude. It desires a relationship with Jesus because of who he is because of what he has already done. So when we meet Jesus, we have no choice but to respond to him with gratitude. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, We give you thanks. We give you thanks for your son whom you sent into this world for us. Who died on the cross in order that we would be saved. For that, Lord, we are eternally grateful. And God, I just pray that you would be with each and every person in here, that they would respond to your call, that they would respond to how you are at work in their lives, even if they can't understand it right now in this season. God, that when, when we hear your call, that we would walk in faith and obedience, that your spirit would be on the move, that we wouldn't just seek to get something from you, that we wouldn't just try and hold people to a specific moral standard, but God, that we would strive to live lives obedient to your word because of what you have given us in your son, Jesus Christ. The sacrificial love that you demonstrated for us. God, we are so grateful and we love you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, receive this blessing. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.